Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fundamentalists podcast. Uh, did you miss us? How are you doing? This feels are like a late night version. I'm trying to do yeah. um, the cadence of Sam Harris. Uh, um, I just want to welcome everybody to the Fundamentalists. Uh, my name is Elliot Morgan. I am here with Peter Rollins. Uh, this is the Fundamentalist podcast. Today, I could give my critique of Sam Harris. You could give your critique Today, of Sam that Harris? could be what we talk about. At, at oh, what, point. like his ahistorical arguments about the Middle East conflict? Okay, so let's, uh, is that where you No, 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 no more philosophical than that. Oh, yeah. nice. Well, uh, before we dive into that, <clears throat> everybody, we have some house cleaning to do, some catching up. Oh, yes, yes. So much, guys, to catch you up on oh, here. Yeah. Where do I mean, we, we obviously did one of these last week, but it feels like a lot has happened exactly. since last week when we podcasted. Last week does feel like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I remember last week it felt, what would that have been, months ago at this mm-hmm. point? <laughs> so we fell off once again because yep. there were a few good reasons. One, I got uh, married. I'm yeah. a married man now. And so sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and sorry, Pete, I'm married. Yep. And you traveled across. And sorry to Grace. And sorry to Grace. <laughs> yeah. First yes. and foremost. The four, yeah, that's the main apology. Yeah. She um she doesn't deserve what's happened <laughs> to her. Uh, and you traveled back to Ireland for a bit. And now, as we are recording this podcast, you guys aren't able to see it, but the a lot of the artwork in this apartment is off the walls. Uh, there is new luggage, suspiciously new luggage, mm-hmm. significant amount of new luggage on the floor next to the camera. And uh, it is filled with God knows what, but whatever it is that belongs to Pete. And apparently... They look like mercenary bags, they, we're saying. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you look cool, for yeah, sure. Or yeah. like you're like an outdoor. Because they're all exactly person. the same. I got them off Amazon. They were the cheapest bags, but they look pretty cool. And they're Wrangler. Yeah, Wrangler. Very Wrangler's country. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Pete's leaving, everybody. Pete is, is headed to Belfast, Ireland, and he's leaving me in his home in Los Angeles. And I'm going to mask my sadness about it with burps and sarcasm. Yeah. So get ready for a fun podcast episode. Oh, I've got a little gift for you. I can do this now. I was going to do it after. Really? Oh, well, then never mind. I'm pretty excited about this. Remember me while I'm away because, you know, I don't know if I'll be away for that long. I'm just going back for a while to see how things go. Oh, you'll but be back. I'll be back. You know, L.A. sucks people back. But as I'm away, I want some little Belfast things for you. Do okay. you know what these are? Um, let me be very gentle with this. This is for our audio listeners, uh, which is most of our listeners vast majority uh pete just handed me a small plate with two what looks like desks on them each holding a tiny book and it says h and w belfast yes and it looks like either these are tiny desks with tiny books on them that each here a little asmr you can hear and i thought you were doing your asmr voice you've been doing that a wee bit at the beginning as well i'm a calming person yeah yeah as Jason Siegel always tells me. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am oddly calm these days. What, this is a hand-painted by Susan and baked in Belfast. So this is pottery. And besides that, I don't know what it is. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Oh. Oh. No, I don't know what it is. Okay, well, this is Samson and Goliath. And Samson and Goliath are the two cranes that built the Titanic. They're, they were the biggest cranes in the world. I think they're still among the biggest cranes in the world. And they dominate the Belfast skyline because Belfast used to be one of the oh. main shipbuilding industries in the world. And so those are like, those are little shipbuilding cranes. No way. From cool. Belfast to remind you of me while I'm away. Uh, I'll be looking over that because I got an apartment that looks at those two cranes. Um, and does it kind of look like that when you because these yeah. are very geometric they're very geometric yep they look exactly like that one Great. samson is the small one goliath is the big one can i it's funny you bring that up pete because mm. and this is not going to be necessarily an interesting part of this conversation but i was thinking about cranes today oh because uh, the I, animals or the machinery? The, the, the machines. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I saw a video of a crane lifting a boat out of the water. It's like mm. the biggest crane that lifts whole boats. Just lifts them right out of the water. Big so boats. Those could do that. 
Yeah. I bet they could, yeah, yeah, if they were building the Titanic. And uh, it's funny, yeah, because I was like, cranes, Because they're man. bigger in real life. Yeah, I was like, no one gives credit to cranes. Cranes are an engineering marvel. Yeah. And uh, they're everywhere. And also, big business. You can make a lot of money in the crane industry. I don't yes. know if people know that or not. Oh, so we're filled with tips already. Wow. Um, thank you, Pete. I will put okay. this in my office, and I will stare at it, and I will long for as we continue this podcast remotely. Is that the plan? Yes, that is the plan. Uh, that okay. very much is the plan. I want um, to make sure that this is not a goodbye to fundamentalists, even yeah. though you can imagine as consistent as we were when we lived 20 <laughs> minutes away, it'll be even more consistent when we're a continent away. But it'll yeah. all be great, and it's all going to work out. Pete, how do you feel, and how do I feel? Answer both of those questions, please. You know, well, I feel kind of a mixed feelings. This has been home for oh, how long? Like when I, so when I moved to L.A., I lived with Connor Habib, a good friend, for a couple of years. And then after that, am I getting the time scale right? I moved from Connor and we lived together. And then I moved from us living together for two years. Did we live together? Mm -hmm. for two two years, years, yeah. In North Hollywood and then to here in downtown LA. And this, this has been, been my two years? And two, three years. Three years. Three years. Okay. So, and this is, uh, and I was in Torrance before that. So I, I drove yes. from the East Coast to Torrance on the West Coast, and then from Torrance to West Hollywood, West Hollywood to North Hollywood, North Hollywood to downtown, downtown LA. And I have loved living here, and I have loved, loved living with you, and you know, I'm gonna miss you desperately. Me too, man. Um, I, 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 I will miss you so much, and uh, I, I guess I'll have to do what I do with friends that I have that don't live nearby, which is talk to you on the phone sometimes. Oh, God, I hate that stuff. Yeah, that's true. Or you could just repress the friendship, just stuff it down, pretend it doesn't exist. I'll get away with that for a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, even, like, I was walking around the other day, and, and uh, yet the other day, it was yesterday, and Grace is like, well, you sad about Pete moving? You sad about, because I was just sort of, like, moping around or whatever and playing my video game. I got a video game. That's something oh, did else you? to talk about on this. Yeah. Oh. Um, I'm, in, I'm a gamer now. Are you a gamer now? Yeah. It's oh, not, wow. not to brag, but I'm pretty into it. Um, <laughs> it's called Nintendo. Uh, and uh, I was like, no. I was like, I'm not upset. I'm not sad that Pete's leaving yet. Like, it'll happen later. And then I was like, that sounds like something that somebody who's sad says. Oh. That sounds like I'm making that's. And then I was like, now I am sad. If she hadn't brought that. Maybe I, I would have preferred just to not think about it. But it was all yeah. great. Yeah. And I'm very happy for it. It makes total sense. And I understand why you're doing it. Uh, I hope that it is not permanently. But I also yeah. respect you regardless. And so that's my way out of that. Yeah. Very good. So yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. And I get, I like, I've lived here for three years. And I realized that. It was coming up the lease, and I either had to sign for another year, and I was like, I don't want to sign yeah, for another year, or take some time out, go back home. I've got some plans. I'm finishing a book. I want to do that in Belfast. Let's talk about the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I started writing a book today. Oh, there you go. Uh, I yeah. knew you were writing a book a while back. Well, I'm still working on that one. That yeah. one's the big one that I actually care about. Yeah. Um, but let me hear about your book, and then let's compare it to mine. Mm. All right. I don't want to derail the conversation because my book is going to be very dumb. That you literally started writing today? <laughs> and, uh, well, today or I think today. Uh, yeah, today. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's, I, uh, but let's hear about yours because you've okay. been working on this for a while and your book will actually probably be helpful and substantial. Okay. Well, I am excited about this because I took like the guts of 10 years away from writing and I started writing a book a while back, maybe a couple of years ago, and then I just didn't feel it was right and so i stopped and in the last six months i've kind of got back to it and i'm feeling confident about it um and the working title is the unknowing absolute or the unknowing god mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. i'm kind of playing around with the subtitle uh on how nothing can save us which i got from this guy uh, a friend peter dixon who was at an event I ran and he did a poem and there was that line, nothing can save us. And I quite liked it because there's a double meaning there, like nothing can save us or nothing can, nothing save. can save us. Right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I've been working on this and my, and what we might talk about today, we don't have to, because we don't have a really an agenda. So we're, that's we're really cool. flying by this. If you can't tell yeah. from the high energy of this podcast so far that I definitely set the tone for 
which I can shake myself out of. But yes, we don't have a plan for yeah, this episode. But yes, but if it. but if we do, uh, what I've been working on, like the the spine of the book, is my critique of uh, classical theism, modern atheism, and mysticism, and the offering of an alternative to those, both theoretically and institutionally. Okay. So that's kind of the the kind of core thing that I'm doing with the book. I'll be very interesting, <clears throat> interested on your critiques on uh, mysticism. Yeah. I have a good idea about your critiques on... I mean, I have an idea about the critique on mysticism, too, because you do the oceanic kind of oneness of everything, and you don't want to fall into that, and then is it sort of escapism, that kind of... Well, yeah, although yeah, what I'm trying to do with this book is get to the real core of the critique, so not like even just kind of, you know, surface stuff, but really like go get, to, down. Get, get down to it. So... Um, the chapter that I'm writing at the moment, it starts with, it kind of looks at basically two very common understandings of the origin of religion and then a kind of a third position. So the, f- the first position is the standard humanist position, which is, and I use actually, um, you <laughs> there was a book you talked about, I asked you, to, was it Chari- Char- Chariot, Chariot of the, of the Fire, or something like that, or, or Chariot, Chariot of the Gods, of the Gods yes, um, kind of, which is all the way kind of religion originating from uh, an encounter with alien technology that completely overwhelms us. Well, okay. Okay. I mean, my understanding is that it's not alien technology. Alien technology is just another interpretation. Yeah, yeah. A modern interpretation. Uh, so it wouldn't be like, I don't, I don't think the argument is that they're coming in contact with alien technology and that's what started religions. But well, it is the book, same I, other. It's the same unknowable thing. Okay, because I did, I, from talking to you, I read, speed, speed read it, but I kind of read Was it. Was that and, Jacques Vallée? Is yeah, that who did that? Uh, v- no, no. Wonders in the Sky? Is that what you're No, thinking? no. Chariots of the Gods, which is an old one from like the 60s. Oh, okay. Um, and his argument, but, well, I mean, if, I used that, that, if that was playfully. his argument. Okay, great, great, great. Yeah, but playfully, I mean, basically, the, the one, one of the standard kind of humanist arguments is whether, I mean, the least plausible is alien technology, but also wow. natural phenomenon or existential phenomenon that... Way that overwhelms likely. us. Way so, more likely. Yeah. So either storms and things, crowd, crop failures and wars that we can't understand leads us to this sense of awe and, and you know, a, a desire for the transcendent or guilt, meaninglessness, facing death, mm-hmm. anything like that. So the idea is that religion arises from kind of our human encounter with the natural world or our own subjective experience that is kind of overwhelming. Okay, but you're still saying natural world, not supernatural world. Yes, exactly, yes. So that's the humanist thing, because there's no supernatural. So it's all natural, whether it's... Materialistic, something happens, you're responding, you're you're concocting a myth or dogma around it. So, and I get the cargo cults, and we talked about this in a podcast before, but in the Malaysian Islands, there was a... uh, after the Second World War, all of these kind of weird religious groups arose, and one of the most famous is this worship of the Messiah, John Frum, who is a, who's like seen as a World War II kind of American veteran who's going to come back to the islanders and vanquish mm-hmm. the foreigners and bring back excess. And one of the reasons for the cargo cults is because during the Second World War, these islanders encountered highly technologically advanced civilizations yes. that were dropping cargo as you know on the on their islands and this got integrated into their religion so it kind of like which is perfectly logical thing to do if you're getting uh literal pallets of food yeah. and supplies and things that you've never seen before you've never there. seen before like you're literally seeing vehicles tanks and jeeps and canned foods and canned soda drinks and all and you've never seen anything like that wow. before and so it's kind of like so one interpretation of religion is that we encounter something that is, you know, that we cannot conceptualize and that births religion. Mm-hmm. And then the standard theological response to that, I'm arguing, is that is not to deny that, but to redouble it, to say that 
if if there is such a thing as true religion, it arises from an encounter with something that is so other that it cannot be reduced to anything natural. There you go. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. Yes. Yes. That's a that's a that's a good kind of sophisticated theological response. And you're gonna go. You're gonna, yeah. But at first, I want to give that a good shot. I want to give that a run for its money. Sure. Right. Um, and one of the best advocates of that is a guy called Jean Luc Marion. And he argues that basically using Kant, uh, we're going to get into philosophy here. Is that something? God good? dang it. <laughs> um, Just because you're leaving, fine. Yes. You okay. Will you allow me some spin philosophy? Spin your yarn, yeah. dude. Okay, well, I, this is fascinating to me. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I mean, you know, I'm taking a I class know. in depth psychology and yeah. the sacred, and so I'm very interested mm. in these religious studies things, even though my knowledge of them is cursory, to say the least. So, Correct. Well, so Immanuel Kant famously, in his critique of uh, pure reason, he argued that for us to make sense of anything, things have to filter through what he called these transcendental categories. And they are quantity, quality, relation, and modality. Time? Is time not one? Uh, quantity. Quantity would probably be time, right? Yeah, so quantities is, quantity basically means that you either say all cats have tails, some cats have tails, my cat has a tail. So you either universal, yep. all, uh, particular, which is a few, or singular, right? When we judge something something arises in one of those ways. We're talking about everything or singular mm -hmm. or plurality. Quality is a, the quality that something has. So you say, you know, Socrates was happy. That's a quality. Or Socrates was not happy. Or Socrates was unhappy. And that's but the categories are basically the filters through which every yes. human being uh, receives information and then categorizes it in their brain yes. in order to make sense of it and go through life. Exactly, exactly. So Kant has As these As opposed four. to the ding and psych. Oh, oh, very good. <laughs> I don't know. Is that... <laughs> dude, I, one of the things is I just read and I don't know how to pronounce any of the words, but you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, about? the in itself. Yeah, yeah the, the yeah, in yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that's exactly... Yeah. So Kant has this notion that we can't know the in itself, like reality as it is. Because we got these hater yeah. blockers on. Exactly. So we got these judgments. But we can understand as long as it filters through quantity, quality, relation, or modality, or all four of those, we can understand something. And then, so what someone like Marion argues is that religion arises from an experience of something that utterly saturates all four of those, mm -hmm. that we cannot we cannot talk about it in any of those terms. Wait, religion does this? Yeah, if, if there's such a thing, I mean, Marion's very careful to say, well, as a philosopher, he's like, if, if, there is a, if there is true religion, if there is a genuine, non-superstitious religion, then it arises from an encounter, not with a natural phenomenon, but something that saturates natural phenomenon. If it was a natural phenomenon, it wouldn't create that kind of thing because yeah. it wouldn't just not be, it would be natural phenomenon. Yeah, so for example, if if it was UFOs for, I mean, that's the craziest idea, but let's, let's imagine that, that. Oh, wait till you hear about my book idea. <laughs> oh, I can't wait, yeah. But if, if for argument's sake, you know, there was some highly advanced civilization came to earth thousands of years ago. Um, okay, well, you would still. Spoilers. That there was. <laughs> No, I'm talking about my book, man. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> but you'd be able to, the you'd see stuff that quantity. You'd either see one UFO or a few UFOs or all UFOs, right? You'd you'd see qualities. The UFO would be fast, or it would be slow, right. or it would be round, or it would be rectangular. In other words, even if it was a very impressive phenomenon, it would still fit into the categories of judgment. Right, the UFO to a certain extent would fit into one or more of these categories, and the theological response is: the word God signifies an encounter with something that that does not fit within any of those categories. Nice, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, f therefore, f the fragmentation of language is basically a like a religious language testifies to something that it cannot speak. There is something that is beyond our ability to conceptualize, and that's why religious language is full of paradoxes and contradictions yep. and mythologies and all of that. 
But there's a there. It's because there's a there there. There's a there there. That uh, yeah, which is what Mario would call otherwise than being. <laughs> oh Jesus, yeah. Um, something that is that utterly destabilizes us. And that's not a knock at Jesus, by the way. That yeah. was a, actually more of a compliment. Yeah, well, Marion's big Jesus guy. Like, yeah, he's, really? like, he's Catholic, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so this is incorporated in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your, what's your, was that you stating the argument you're going against? Or you, yes. okay. Yeah, but say, yeah, setting the argument kind of, and then, yeah, what I'm kind of ultimately going to How, how do you Okay, how do you dismantle or 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 under not you know challenge a belief such as that with only philosophy or only reason when you're talking about something that's inherently irrational and inherently subjective and inherently like very affective like there's yeah. something that like people experience things how do you get into that web with only one sword uh, to slice through it? Yeah, well, and so, I say sword because I'm back into video games. Oh yeah, nice. So, so. You, what are, what are you playing? Zelda. Is that right? Is that yeah. an old school one, or yeah. have they got an updated version? That's updated as in like six years ago. Is that right? Yeah. I'm pretty up to date on the game. But anyway, okay. in my day, I was really good at worms. I was the best at worms. We had the, I was living in a house with seven people, and beside us lived a house with about five people, and we had regular competitions at worms, and I. I was the best. First of I, that's all, that's why I remember it. They would probably disagree. I've never heard of worms. Have you not? No, oh, but the so fact that good. I haven't heard of worms made that statement way more entertaining. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons I'm going to miss you because every now and then I forget. We were hanging out last time. We were hanging out was last week, and it was we're getting caught up. And you said some word that I absolutely have never heard before in my life, and it's like an Irish thing. It's like a slang. Oh, Irish that's thing. right. You said. What and was I was trying that? to remember because I was trying to tell Grace about it, and I could, I was like, I'll ask Pete, but I don't think he'll be able to remember it anyway. Anyway. Yeah. So how do you approach these deep arguments, but also hold that thought? Let's have an intermission. Let's all take a breather because yeah. I'm going to top off my drink because I'm enjoying this very much. Very by the good. Way. I hope everyone's enjoying this. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. If you're I'm not enjoying it, you're yeah. wrong. Hey, you know. So this guy I'm talking about, Jean-Luc Marion, he's a phenomenologist. And phenomenologists try to take seriously human subjective experience. So they... They utterly, and like even with existentialism, does the same. So existentialism, phenomenology, they really take absolutely seriously people's... The person. Yes, and their lived experience. Their experience of the world, their experience of objects, their experience of themselves as a subject. And then they try to offer a way of thinking that allows us to... Um, kind of do justice to that experience to so. yes because the, everything ultimately has some kind of phenomenological element yeah. to it, right we're yeah. all part of the thing that we're doing yeah. and i mean this the is experimenter the, is never yeah. totally separate from the experiment that's it and that like that is i mean this is very simplistic and not completely true but i'll start by saying it is like one of the distinctions between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy is analytic philosophy tends towards objective problem solving so like mathematics, it tends to try to divorce the subject from what they're studying. So anybody who studies mathematics can do it, right? It's not about how you're feeling and whether you're a good person or a bad person, depressed or happy or anything like that, right? You as a subject are kind of as removed as possible. The continental philosophy has always been interested in trying to think what the subject is in their happiness and sadness, in their commitment to a cause or lack of commitment, in their goodness or badness. So, continental philosophy. The the good stuff. The good stuff. I mean, that's it. That's why, I mean, I started analytic philosophy, got very bored because um, I was primarily interested in what does it mean to be human. And continental philosophy attempts to think what it is to be human within the human experience, particularly phenomenology. So, someone like Jean-Luc Marion, he takes absolutely seriously religious experience, but tries to give a language that does justice to it. Okay. Put it like that. Okay. Put it like that. So phenomenology, okay. Yeah. In your book, okay. Yeah. Not full picture, obviously. 
Yes. Can't go all phenomenology. That's how you get psychopaths. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's literally (laughs) verbatim a response I put in my class (laughs) responses for my homework today. Is that right? Uh, Part of the response was like, you can't go all, you can't get too into this because that's how you get crazy people. And if you don't (laughs) have phenomenology at all, then you get like a a boring person. And so that's, yeah. Very good. So you're, you were, you've done some stuff in phenomenology. Well, I mean, it's all, this is, you know, phenomenology is the whole, the depth psychological thing is like yeah. all phenomenological yeah. and, and archetypal psychology, is all phenomenological and all, and it's almost, I would argue sometimes too phenomenological, which is why I'm interested in hearing what your ah, okay. yeah. critique is. Cause I love the phenomenological stuff and it is a $5 word, but really it basically just mm. means like, Hey, this is what you're experiencing. And yeah. that has value because you're experiencing it because there's nothing that is, exists in the world that someone has not experienced. Everyone experiences everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so phenomenology and the Husserl's really the 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 key phenomenologist is how do we kind of take absolute. Well, Heidegger was Heidegger was he comes after Husserl, but like Heidegger's whole project in being and time uh, was to try to think. Uh, what it is to be like so for example human beings experience fast and slow but that fast and slow don't exist in the world that there's velocity but there's not fast and slow that's experience yeah there's not heavy and light there's mass but but there's not heavy and light so heavy and light is phenomenological mass is physics but i'm still uh, going back to how we how you tackle issues of phenomenology from a point of like how are you going to do this okay like i'm but i also don't want you to spoil the book but does, do you understand what i'm at like am i being uh maybe i'm not being articulate enough but basically you're gonna write a book that kind of addresses varying and polar opposite views of religion and gives a third way yeah. Right. So what is the third way that incorporates the lived felt experience of the individual? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I'll put it this way. And I like, we're going to bounce around a lot here, right? Let's pinball it. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, standard theism says God exists and standard atheism says God does not exist. Right. That's a standard binary thing. Theists say God exists. Atheists say God does Classic. not exist. Um, Tale as old as time. Yes. Um, I'm interested in the notion that my critique of modern atheism is that actually the signifier God is the signifier of, of, of non-existence as such. God is the non-existent thing. That, that that's what religion at its best does is it opens up a space for something that is otherwise than being. And that's phenomenological. That's a phenomenological critique of atheism it's very interesting i mean in the little i've read of civilization and its discontents and i am so sorry yeah for being if it comes off like i'm trying to point counterpoint you because i'm really not but the it reminded me of freud's understanding of religion and the idea of god as an illusion but illusion not necessarily being something that is not true, because mm. if it's not true, that's a delusion. And yep. an illusion is something that you definitely absolutely can't prove. You get something out of. Uh, and then he sort of took the more, you know, uh, neuro- neurotic or uh, religion is neurosis kind of deal of it being a product of the edible complex and yada, yada, yada. But you're going, you're not quite doing that, it sounds like. You're doing, like, that a little, but you're also going, like, no, the fact that it's unknown means that it's unknown, and therefore you're not making a metaphysical claim about. Yeah, although, I mean, and you bring up something very interesting about Freud there, right? So for the sake of people listening, Freud, this is a very phenomenological move. He says that a delusion is something that's wrong, that's incorrect, but an illusion, as you say, is you're invested in it, but it could be true. So a little girl could fantasize about being a princess, and then it turns out through a DNA test. Her name is Meghan Markle. Is, yeah, Mar- oh. yeah, and she actually is a princess. Um, she's still having an, an illusion. With, like, so she's still fantasizing about being a princess. It just so happens that she's correct. Yeah. But that's the, that is the interesting move. And that, that, is a, that is one of the differences between... 
again, analytic and continental philosophy. When you look at analytic philosophers of religion, like people like there's Richard Swinburne and there's others, Alvin Plantinga, they they are arguing for or against, for the existence of God. In continental philosophy, it's like that's kind of bracketed. Like like again, like for Freud and particularly Lacan, the little girl's fantasy about being a princess is really the interesting thing. Whether or not she is a princess is beside the point. So in other words, someone's belief in God and where that comes from and what that says and what that experience is is what's important. Whether or not they happen to be correct, that's like, that's by the by, that's not that important. That's a phenomenological way of looking at things. So a phenomenologist does not ask the question, does God exist in any direct way? Are they... um, they ask, what does it mean to say that God exists? What right. does it mean to believe? You stay within the realm of human experience. Yes, yes. And then if you, you know, someone like Marion, who's very clever, then finds a way to link the two. But that's... Oh, you know, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, folks, he's not just making this up. He, I don't know if he does it on purpose no. or if it's accidental, but every time I walk in, he's got a book on the counter that has the name of the author he's inevitably going to mention five seconds later. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. my guess is that you don't really read that much. You just read a little bit from one person, yeah. and then you kind of throw out that person. <laughs> that's the secret. And like, I'm writing this book about this guy. I'm like, really? Because a few weeks ago it was Zizek, and before that it was Lacan, and before that it was somebody else, and it was, I'm yeah. sure Tom McGowan somewhere got snuck in there. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. Uh, he's very good. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I don't so, want to keep going down oh, yeah. this rabbit hole unless you want to yeah let's keep yeah i I think we're we're bouncing around we're getting somewhere okay um so so when when i said like the kind of humanist argument is religion arises not wholly but religion partly arises from humans experience of the unknown the things that they don't understand things that they can't understand um and then this is called the god of the gaps that the more we understand potentially the less religious people will get. The theological response to that is uh, that religion, if true religion exists, it arises not from something that's simply unknown, like we don't understand at present, but something that we could never understand, something that fundamentally saturates us, something that fundamentally short circuits our conceptual categories. And I, I would add, I mean, my... Uh, it would it's a saturation not only of everything but it it feels incredibly intimate and incredibly like this all saturating mystery is also aware or also involved in you yeah if to have a that's at least my understanding of a truly religious experience yes yes Uh, from a phenomenological and somewhat academic standpoint yeah and one of the clever things marion does which he he starts by by offering certain experiences of saturation that are completely normal, that all of us experience. Right. That yeah. you don't create religions out of. Yes, exactly. And that's very clever. Because, yeah, like a bear. Yeah. yeah. So Like if I saw a bear, I'd be shit yeah, it could, scared. Yeah, completely kind of saturated. Can, yeah. But I wouldn't go yeah. make like a cult out of it. Yeah. So he, like he, he gives three Maybe. examples of this. He, gives, he says, events, the flesh, and the idol. Um, or the events, the idol and flesh. Um, and so an event is like um, the sinking of the Titanic. So he says, the sinking of the Titanic, if you're involved, if you're subjectively part of it, or you're even part of communities that are interested in it, there's no end of what you can learn. Historically, sociologically, you can learn so much about shipbuilding, mechanical engineering. Like you can't so it saturates you as in you can't talk about the universal because you can't grasp it all. It's not just a singular event. It's not a series of events. It's like it completely blows up. Transcendental. Quantity. There's something about it. Yeah. It's a little too much. It's too much. There's a too muchness. And, it, it, and even stuff that you know about the Titanic, you can always look at it from a different angle. There'll be no end to documentaries. There'll be no end to books that are about it because it so it saturates quantity yeah. do you um, know my favorite fact about the titanic no where it oh. was made by these little cranes <laughs> yeah. pete that's it thank you All right, it was the circle. english that drove it not the not the irish stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um they just built it yeah they just built it it wasn't supposed to be driven into icebergs anyway um then flesh or sorry the idol which is paintings where he says when you look at a painting like the ones behind us you look at a painting it's 
a, a painting that you're subjectively invested in, you can't really talk about what qualities it has, what it has or what it doesn't have. It kind of like, it reads you. It's You can't yeah. take it all in and you go back to it again and again. So again, art saturates you. And then finally, flesh. Um, he says like, um, your flesh, the experiences of suffering and pleasure that your flesh gives you is a type of relation that's different from cause and effect and from other types of relations. So mm-hmm. he, he outlines all of these kind of natural things. an interesting uh, guy. Oh, yeah, he's very interesting. I was very into him when I was doing my PhD, but that's 20 years ago now. Um, and then, but then he does, the, he does the clever twist and he says, religion, if religion, if true religion exists, arises from a saturation of all of these elements. It's kind of when someone feels that they're undone by a gaze, by this feeling that they are being, in one sense, they, it's not that the world is an object, they're an object to something else. Nice, yeah, they're, well put, yeah. They're undone by something that they cannot grasp or know or understand in any way. That's what, that's where religion arises from. And he says that's a legitimate thing. That's a legitimate mm-hmm. uh, experience. This guy's not a union. He's not a, well. No, he's not. Okay. But he's not. But 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 Falling Jung would. Similar. No, but Jung would would fit within that. I think. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, like um, because if if the standard humanist thing is the fragmentation of religious language arises from a confrontation with not knowing why we die, not knowing why the universe is the way it is, not knowing why we're here then this theological response is, no, 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 the fragmentation of religious language is because we cannot grasp the hyperabundance, the superabundance of the essence that is ungraspable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but this is where then I think you can critique both. Okay, because I have a... Cr- okay. okay, go for it. Well, talk to me. Well, my only critique on. would be you could also make a god out of ungraspability or god out of mm. mystery or a god out of the unknown. So, which is kind of what Marion's saying. He he wrote a book called what was it called? Oh, um, certain uncertainties, something like that. I can't remember the title. Certain uncertainties. Yeah, my last post that I was just referencing that I was making a reply on was called "Certainly Circular Certainty." Cer- certain uncertainty. Certainly circular certainty. Okay. Oh wow. It was I was being cr- critical of Jung. Of Hume. Jung. Jung. Oh, oh, were you? Oh, yeah. ah, well, quite... oh, there's hope for you. Yeah. Oh, well, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> no, crit- I have to throw in a critique every now and then because that's how you get A's. Uh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, okay. So go keep going. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. So his. I'm enjoying this, by the way. I don't know. This is meandering all over the place, but it's pinball, and here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. So his book, Certain Uncertainties, is that, and this is not that different from Hegel in some respects, is that. We actually can be certain of some things, and we can be certain of our uncertainty. Like there is, so the his argument is that there is a kind of dimension of novelty or unknowing, and that we can know that we do not know, and so that's a type of certainty. That's a yeah, type of certainty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I liked him more when he was named uh, Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right, everybody? This is an insufferable episode on my part. <laughs> Pete's doing great. I am annoying, and I hear myself, and I'm sorry. But uh, that is exactly what Descartes said, though, right? Oh yeah, it was yeah. You know, funnily enough, yes, yeah. So Descartes, his whole argument is he's looking for the. I doubt, therefore I am. I, the yes. only thing I can't doubt is that I doubt. Yes, the, I cannot think that I'm not thinking. If I think I'm not thinking, I'm thinking I'm not thinking. Therefore, I think, and if I think, I am. Right, even if there was an all-powerful demon in the universe, it's a nice anchor yes. to reality. Reality, yeah. And then you know what Descartes did after that? Well, you will because you've been studying him. But is that Descartes then has a weird argument for the existence? So, so all that Descartes gets is I think, therefore I am. Right, and he goes like, "Shit, how do I then get into believing in science and physics and biology and chemistry? How can I? How can I have confidence that those tell us mm-hmm. something true about the world?" And so he creates an argument for the existence of God. And then he says, and if God exists, God would not deceive us. Therefore, we can trust our senses. Look, yeah. I like when people take the long way to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of saying it, yeah. Um, and his argument, which connects with what you're saying, is that God is the name of something that we cannot ever grasp. And so we can kind of, 
we have this notion in our minds of something that we cannot know. And and then he kind of says basically that only God could put that idea in our heads because we, we, like a cat can't think of quantum mechanics. A human being couldn't think of God. Like we can only think what our capacity is capable There's of. There's got to be something above us going, you don't get it. Yeah, and, and, and planting that in our mind. Right. That was a terrible way of describing it. He has a few different versions, but 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 that's basically it's the amazing. idea. Is you know, you affirm belief in UFOs without even realizing it, Pete. Uh, this is crazy. Oh, uh, I want to hear about your book in a second, actually. We'll get to the end of this a... and we'll get into the UFO thing. Um, I don't really have much of a critique on what you're talking about. I mean, the, I, my, um, I, the only thing I would say is, and I'm sure you've thought about this cause you, you do a fair amount of thinking. I do a little bit. Um, y- y- uh, the, the unknowable, right? Mm-hmm. We can't know it. We can't know it. It's out there. We can't know it. We just can't know it. So you have to get comfortable in the ambiguity, if you're comfortable, comfortable in the contradiction, etc. Um, my only, thought slash experience slash opinion is that you can get to know the edges and you can get to know, you can see the little bits of it and you can see that there's something going on, but you cannot, there's a difference I think between absolute ignorance and absolute isolation from whatever the other is. And then these little bleed over crossover things that happen. And that's my understanding as it currently stands as a novice, uh, when it comes to the, developments of religion and people who are highly spiritual and people who have highly uh weird experiences high strangeness yes. experiences so can i give you a thought of where i think you stand and Please? see if you resonate with this so i it sounds like and this is a very respectable position this is quite kantian so emmanuel kant he argued that there is a reality in itself you talked about it earlier there's an Bang insight Yes, thank you. We we'll say it again. Bang and psych. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, that that is kind of we cannot grasp because our minds filter everything. However, he did not, and this is this is the critique. Um, this is why people like um, oh god, who is that person that Jordan Peterson reads? I read his book once on Kant. Stephen, somebody. Pinker. No, it wasn't Stephen Pinker. It was, uh, but he wrote this very bad book on Kant. But is it Kant? <laughs> did um he thought he he had this realm called the sublime and the sublime was he said that when, say when you encounter a massive storm that you're in you're on a ship or something like that and you experience this storm um there is a the experience of the sublime is whenever you in a way briefly glimpse that there is something so vastly greater than you and the storm right that you cannot grasp and he said, this is the sublime moment. So the sublime is not where you grasp the in itself, the essence of the reality. The sublime is the moment when the natural world so overwhelms you that you briefly have this sense that there is something utterly other. And that's the sublime. Nice. Um, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. And then he says, and it, one way to describe it is... Um, if you say to somebody, no words can describe how much I love you, right? If I say this to you, right? No words can describe how much I love you. Mm-hmm. The you weird try. thing is, yeah, but the weird thing is the failure to say what love is actually communicates what love is. So the failure right. is a success. In fact, the, the idea of saying no words could ever describe it is much more effective at conjuring up what love is, the unconditionality of love, than trying to explain it. Right. So for Kant, in a sense, there's a failure in language and a failure in experience, but the failure actually articulates what it feels to articulate. Just like, as I say, I cannot express my love for you, weirdly expresses the love in its failure to do it. Nice. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, Pete, of years ago, years, mm-hmm. I was getting, um, uh, Grace and I were getting married mm-hmm. and I was doing my vows Ah. And I had to read them, and I could not finish what I'd written. So I, because I was choked up so much, uh-huh. and so I had to stop. And I folded it up, and I said, "Quote, you get the idea." And it yeah. worked like a charm. 
but I go, felt bad because I was like, does she not know that I yeah. that I didn't I didn't say the last part where I love and da, 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 da. but it was a very sweet thing and it was very like I didn't feel bad about not finishing it maybe a little embarrassed about the emotional display mm. but then you know it, it's I understand the idea of what yes. you're saying that's the, that's exactly it like you're what's more powerful than you reading that is you basically going I cannot express this like the, so no, you, couldn't get it your out. failure to express your love is what expressed your love right so more well, I'm, batting nine, I'm batting nine uh, I'm batting a thousand right now though yeah <laughs> but that, that's exactly I mean it's 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 I think everyone understands that when they hear it. it's like oh yeah your very failure the very moment that you failed to express yourself the very moment that you couldn't either th- and through emotion and you couldn't read it was the very moment that you expressed what you could not yeah. express right the, that's idea, the, the message supply. came across Yes, that's the Kantian sublime. Apophatic. Yes, that's Without the apophatic. Light. Yeah, that's the apophatic. That's the Kantian sublime. Um, now, here's my critique. Hit me. Hit me, yeah. Is that, um, and this is, so I use an example from Lacan. Lacan talked about, there's a Greek myth by 300 BC. It was two of the greatest painters in the world. One was called uh, Zuk. Let's call him Zuk. That's not right. Zukas, Zukas, or something. And the other one was called uh, Parhethus. Sure. Let's call him one and two because uh, I can't remember their names. One right? and two. Got it. <laughs> um, Zukas, I think it's Zukas. Zukas was, they were both the best painters of their day. And they uh, arrogantly want to kind of decide who is the best painter. And so they have this competition who can create the most realistic painting. And on the day when they have to both display their paintings, they put, they they go up to the front, and the first person to display the painting is this guy uh, Zucas, I think something like that, and he he has painted grapes, and these grapes are so realistic that the birds of the air come down and try to eat them, right? So he's feeling pretty good about himself, like fool the animals, and then he looks at his friend and he says, okay. There's a curtain. He says, right, pull back the curtain. I want to see your painting. And of course, the painter says, the curtain is the painting. And he won. Because what the appearance was, he had these curtains. And Zukas looked at it and said, pull back the curtain. Mm-hmm. He was fooled. That's the painting. That's the painting. They realized there is nothing behind the curtain. The curtain is the painting. So Lacan uses this to, to talk about how appearance can generate the illusion that there is something real behind it right when the real is in appearance itself and that is the so the fear for me the failure of religious language to describe the superabundant essence of the divine is what creates the illusion of that superabundance the real ah wrong the, the, the g- wrong. wrong no <laughs> wrong yes but you know what there is a signifier we can use called god which is in the failure yes. itself love it so the wrong. failure of language no what's the trump <laughs> gift <laughs> wrong wrong <laughs> i thought you would resist this uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just glad I can but you follow know it enough to resist it. But when you read the book, <laughs> you're going to be convinced. <laughs> I highly doubt it, but I will definitely read it. I love no. all the the interpretations of all this because what we're talking about is the most extreme situations in people's lives, the most intimate situations, the most uh, awe-inspiring, existentially dreadful, ontologically shocking moments, and I love all of yeah. the interpretations. I know. And here, this is I'm this will be the difference between Jung and Freud, I would say. Like, I would put Jung on the side of believing that the fragmented nature of religious language testifies to a reality that we no longer have access to, but that is substantial. Whereas Freud, and let's see, and then you can come back on this, Freud, but basically Lacan is a radical Freudian. Like Lacan, all Lacan is, is basically taking Freud to an extreme. So the Lacanian Freudian idea is that the fragmentation of religious language does not testify to a type of truth. It is the truth, the truth of a fragmentation within reality itself. Mm-hmm. Reality is ontologically a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. There you go. I mean, Pete, 
I got your I got your general. You're not you're nothing if not on brand. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, I'm very uh uh I mean, I would say Jung would not say that we've lost access to it. I mean, he very much would say we still have access. But he would he not say of, about that that the archetypes kind of like testify to something even deeper that we do not ar- archetypes know. would be sort of a priori things. My understanding is that Jung uh, Jung's position is that, it, that we have an a priori. The psyche itself has a religious disposition, not necessarily religious, but a spiritual thing, a desire for transcendence. It's hardwired into us, which in many ways, in my mind, is kicking the ball down the field a little bit and being like, oh, we'll deal with it later. Uh, it's not something I necessarily... I agree with the idea that these every person's psyche has a desire for transcendence in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and But I don't think that that means whatever that is on the other side may not exist, it's definitely unknowable, uh, but the shape that it takes in every individual's life may not look anything like religion or spirituality. It may come out in an admiration of a political figure or a allegiance to a sports team or something like that. Yeah. And it, yeah. it follows the Kantian kind of like, you know, from Jung's perspective. Also, him trying to be a scientist all the time is very cute because he wasn't a scientist, but he tried to have a scientific viewpoint on things. So he was always going phenomenologically this is what people are experiencing and his whole idea was that there is a sort of god form that is unknowable and the contents of that there's god contents then that everyone has sort of god contents yeah in some way and it, yeah. some god people's god contents might be like unknowing or contradiction or dissatisfaction or that kind of thing yeah well, okay. I'll have, to come back to that. I'll have to come back to that. Because what I want to say is... I had a feeling like, you might not like yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I, will, I might want to come back on that. But yeah, like, so my reading of Jung is that, that broadly speaking, see what you think, because um, you're studying this more than me, is that Jung kind of has a notion of like, so once language comes into existence, language cannot access the thing. So, as, and, and this is a Hegelian point, so this is a very, I think, is that the birth of the word is the death of the world. As soon as we name something, we're, we've got a distance from it. Like, it's because as soon as we're in linguistics, as soon as we're in naming, there is a certain yes. kind of, like, you know, loss. Yes, so that's absolutely. absolutely right. But then what I, what I get in Jung is that the archetypes and the kind of, like, this the unconscious or subconscious for Jung is is a type of no collective um, unconscious not subconscious oh yeah subconscious although, isn't it yeah although yeah well it, that's there's pre-conscious good, and there's not the subconscious is like a because Jungians pet talk peeve. Jungians post Jungians talk about subconscious did, did Jung talk about yeah you you never hear Freud is talk about subconscious but you I hear never Jungians, hear Jungians talk about subconscious yeah well I that's I hear I, I hear um uh, materialist psychologists like in academia yeah. talk about the subconscious yeah but psychologists yeah they have no clue yeah, so yeah um, but yeah but it's interesting that <laughs> yeah f- yeah, big I, yeah shots fired shots fired <laughs> um, you know yeah I'm, I'm interested and you should and come back to me on that because I hear you and you talk about the subconscious but I was interested I'm trying to look at me I'm in the frame you're in the frame okay um, oh you are in the frame yeah um, just that um, yeah, so it'd be interested in whether Jung, because t- Jung is a depth psychologist, and depth psychology and subconscious are connected. So yeah, I mean, my so understanding, depth, I can understand preconscious. Before we talked about the preconscious, preconscious, yes, preconscious. I associate just, subconscious. Oh God, this is—is is anybody listening? <laughs> There's no way. My understanding is that the subconscious and the preconscious are basically the same thing. When people say subconscious, I think preconscious. Okay, well, that, that I don't have a maybe problem I'm wrong with that, but. So, and Freud is responsible for this party because one of Freud's earliest um, descriptions of the unconscious was an iceberg. And you have a little bit of the iceberg that's above the water, and then you have loads of the iceberg that's beneath the water. Right? Freud's was? Freud's, er, one of his early... Yeah, Jung really stole that and ran with it, didn't he? Yes, well, Freud and Freud rejected it ultimately. That's, but that's it, because subconscious means a sub, submarine, mm-hmm. submerged, like beneath. But still conscious. But still conscious. Whereas Freud eventually and Lacan really brings it on is that the unconscious is not underneath the water the unconscious is in consciousness it's it's yes. right on the Laced surface in, it's all yeah. in yeah, yeah. So, I love all of it you know yeah is that okay if I just like all you of s- it you can, you're allowed to like all of it I'll still try and win you over I'm going to try and win you over that's fine is that I mean okay? I like to think that I go I switch every day from being a Jungian archetypal Hellmanian guy 
transpersonal, psychoanalytic, Lacanian, uh, materialist, uh, bored guy. You're, I just, like, you're I an it. intellectual slut. It's all right. You sleep with any 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 intellectual. I'm figure. a hermeneutic whore. <laughs> yes, a hermeneutic whore. <laughs> That's what you are. <laughs> That's it. Collage philosophy. Yeah. I'm, you know. I, don't, I, I don't like know. it. I like all of it. I like hear what people think, and I'm. I, I don't feel a lot of pressure to, uh, you know, wave a flag any direction, even though um, here's how it happened. Here's yeah. how the story begins, Pete, with my book. Okay, yes. Let's talk about this. All right. All right I'll... Dude, I, okay. This goes back to my wedding a little bit. Let me make sure we, we're okay on time. Or battery, rather. Okay. If you're still listening, God bless you. <laughs> Unless there's there something else you want to... No, no, no. I want to get into okay. this. Yeah. I'm very curious about that guy, and I hope everybody listened, and that was great. Uh, and Pete, I can't wait to see what you're writing and everything. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about me now. Uh, so my buddy, Chip, right? Mamrie's boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Right? Grace's best friend, Mamrie. They have a podcast. Great podcast. Everybody should listen to it. They don't talk a lot about this stuff. Kant or Hegel or Heidegger or Husserl. No. Do they do much of that? Marion? They haven't, I don't think, yet. Yes. Okay. But they do the a lot episode. of drag queen okay, yeah. uh, stuff, which is equally philosophically sound. So mm. uh, Chip introduced me to this type of joint, this marijuana joint, right? You do drugs? Uh, I said I did a, a marijuana Once thing. Did you inhale? First of all, you're calling it drugs. And I did inhale. I did inhale. Okay. I love that question. Did you inhale? <laughs> it's very funny. Um, anyway, so... I got, uh, I, I, every time I would do these joints, I'd be like, this is too much for me because I'll mm. smoke marijuana. But I was like, these things were tiny and I was doing it and I was like, I don't know what this is. I was like, this is different and I'm scared of it because I feel insane when I do these things. Mm-hmm. So then I, of course, go and buy two packs of them. Yeah. All right. And so I start doing this and then I start watching, um, this newest thing that our buddy Aaron Van Voorhees turned me on to. It's an episode of unsolved mysteries about, um, I think it's Missouri, maybe one of the M States, 1996 incident UFO kind of deal. <laughs> and so I'm watching it and I'm high and I'm like, this is excellent. I'm like, this is exactly what I want right now. And then I was like, all right, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a fiction book for fun. Right. Mm. This is not for publishing. Yeah. What would I write a book about? And I figured it out. Okay. Here's what happened, Pete. There are no aliens. There's no little green men traveling from across the universe. Ever. Okay. Well, okay. Never has been, never will be. Hold the phone. This is what the fuck. Okay. Okay. However, you okay. know how there, Charles Darwin came up with this idea of natural selection? I, I've, I've read about it. Yeah. Okay, well, there's a chapter in that story about a fish mm. that flops onto the ground mm. and somehow manages to walk, and I Survive. guess we have yeah. now we have art. Yes. I don't understand how that works. Yeah. Okay? I'm not making a case for intelligent design. I'm just saying that's kind of funny yeah. that that happened that way. Okay. Oh here's, God! If you Freudian say, as soon as you say, I'm not making a case. There's no negation in the unconscious, so you are making a case for intelligent design. Well, yeah, yeah obviously. Right. Uh, okay, so keep going. I'm not making a case yeah, for intelligent yeah. design. I'm making a case that when that fish came on the water, there were 13 other fishes that were like, "Good luck, dude." The guy, the fish who came on land, mm-hmm. was a drunk fish who was out of his mind. And his girlfriend was out of his mind since they had to reproduce. And that's that's how evolution happened. Look it up. I'm yeah. just telling you facts, man. Do your own research. <laughs> and the other fish went further down. All right? Chains of evolution happened. This could have happened beforehand as well. It didn't need to happen at the same time. Bottom line, aliens uh, have lived amongst us for the entire time. They're fish people. Oh. And the reason that they don't show themselves is because they're scared of us. So it's an and alter- why wouldn't they so be? an alternative evolutionary line? That's what the book's going to be. Yes, right? exactly. It's oh, an alternative wow. evolutionary line. It's binary. So we have terrestrial and subterranean, right down into the oceans. And then of course, you know, you have the the octopus people, and of course they look like fishes. Of course they look like octopuses. So how did they do technology? Did they get opposable thumbs? Yeah, they got everything, dude. They got multiple opposable thumbs. They got opposable thumbs out their ass. They are so opposable thumb heavy. They don't know what to do with all of their opposable thumbs. And so basically, this is a young adult novel. 
there's a kid who's like kind of an idiot who figures this out. <laughs> but no, that's all I've got so far. And that's well, my book. This is very funny. So and it's literally it's a funny, it's very funny. That's very good. It's a really funny idea. It's a very funny idea. Because like, it pisses everybody off. And also, the whole point is that the aliens are not aliens. They're just a species that we haven't discovered yet. And they live amongst us. And they're terrified of us. Well, they live amongst us, not in the depths of the ocean. They live on land. I haven't gotten that far yet. What okay. do you think? Because I'm kind of going like... I, I like s- them living amongst us every now and then. Yeah, but, but maybe like they, they develop their technology and they develop their civilization Aquaman. deep underground, underwater. Yeah. And then, but they're so sophisticated that, yes, they're able to come up and be among us and study us and work us out and try and figure shit out. Study, see, I like the... Study's cool, but I like the idea of them kind of scouting to see if it's okay. Like, I like the idea of them needing to come up, but then also it's like, if you look at the, if you entertain this idea, I wanted to come up with the stupidest <laughs> explanation that explains everything from religious yeah. experiences to alien encounters to the way that UFOs are supposedly right. UFOs react. look a little bit like fishbowls. I mean, imagine no, and They're all trans, transmedium. Yeah. yeah. And they're water. Like maybe UFOs are like, they're full of water. They're like little fishbowls of them looking and analyzing us. And we're thinking it's from outer space, Close. but they're actually from the ocean. Close. The alien suits that they wear are definitely filled with... No, I guess. Okay. Anyway, so this <laughs> this episode's falling off the rails, and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's a great idea. Uh, it's very fun, right? I did, because I did start writing a, a kind of the similar thing once about a civilization that existed and then completely died off and then on the same planet Earth. and But it was so long ago that there's no kind of experience of it like, but yet you're not into conspiracy theories because that's an actual conspiracy yeah well theory. then i later learned that that w- that is a conspiracy theory it's so idea. fun yeah it's imaginative and it gets your brain going anyway yeah. yeah something about god i guess you were saying oh yeah so and you're moving god and i'm married the all right of the lack yes there you go and you're moving i'm married and there you go uh, the truth is i'm ending this podcast right now because i want to hang out with pete and yeah. it's my time <laughs> and so thank you everybody but uh also for those of you who are patrons thank you so much we've paused uh the previous cu- uh, recent months because we haven't been doing anything yeah. but if you want to help support the podcast as we will have to pay for uh hosting or the, the stuff yeah and yeah. the alcohol so you can go to fundamentalist.com slash the patreon to Wonderful. figure that out <laughs> thank you <laughs> bye everybody bye.